From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Sonia, Dan, Maya, Galen, Linda, Teresa, my dear three Emmas, Jessica, Lady Janice, Marie, Elena, Alethea, John, Nanette, Rachel, Sophie, Whitney, David, Catherine, Trudy, Stacy, and Holly. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron. Like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me and we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with a listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. This week's podcast will be a two-part series on Roman Polanski, and this one will be a deep dive, at least for me. I want to say that I've wanted to cover him for a long time, but I also knew that it would be an arduous task that would take so many hours of research to make sure I had accurate information from credible sources. I already know enough about this man to have very strong opinions about him, but I pride myself on working diligently to find true information and little-known information, and I do this for myself more than anything. What made me decide to go ahead and cover him was an article on Reddit where he is being charged with yet another crime, and this man is, as of this recording, 88 years old. So... Enough blathering. Let's get into it. Roman Polanski was born on August 18th, 1933 in Paris, France. So as we do, let's touch on a bit of history for that time. 1933 is described as one of the worst years during the Great Depression. And actually, there were very few countries around the globe that were not affected or didn't experience a Great Depression of their own. Due to these very difficult times, some very controversial and downright evil leaders came into power that might not have had things been better. One of the most well-known was, of course, in Germany. The unemployment was quite high after their defeat during World War I. Adolf Hitler became the chancellor and opened the first concentration camp at Dachau in March. 
Germany's parliament building in Berlin was set on fire, and because of this, the Reichstag fire decree was passed, effectively nullifying many German civil liberties. Hundreds of people were arrested as the Nazis began to round up their political opponents. By the end of March, Hitler was fully the dictator of Germany, and the Nazis began their campaign of boycotting all Jewish-owned businesses. And as we all know, it quickly went downhill from there. There was a lot more going on around the world that was quite devastating, but this particular chapter in history is what affected young Roman the most, so we'll stick with this. His parents were Moises and Beulah Leibling. Moises was born in September 1903 in Krakow, Poland. He grew up to be a talented painter and sculptor. I really couldn't find out much more about his early years. Beulah, or Bella, was born in April of 1900 in Russia, though her exact birth year differs by a few years in different sources. It is said that she was of half-Jewish ancestry, but had been raised in the Catholic faith. She had been married once before Moises and had a daughter, Annette. At some point, Moises moved to Paris, France, changed his name to Rysark Polanski, met and married Beulah, who some sources said had already been living in Paris. Then together, they had Roman. Now, it was said that, even though Beulah had been raised Catholic and Moises Jewish, the two were actually agnostic. For those of you who might not know, an agnostic is a person who believes that nothing is actually known or can be known of the existence or nature of God or anything beyond material phenomena. These people typically say that they can't prove or disprove that a God exists. So, when Roman was four years old, his father decided to move the family from Paris to Krakow in southern Poland to be closer to his family. Just two short years later, in 1939, World War II would begin. It was Hitler's invasion of Poland that officially began the war. You see, Hitler believed that war was the only way he could get the necessary living space for what he believed his pure, superior German race would need to expand. He and Joseph Stalin signed the German-Soviet Non-Aggression Pact, which meant he would have Soviet assistance in conquering and dividing Poland. And there's a lot more to it than that, but that gives you the general idea. So Hitler's troops invaded from the West, and in a couple of days after, France and Britain declared war on Germany. Just over two weeks later, Soviet troops began to invade from the East through Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Needless to say, Poland was overcome, and in less than a year, both were dividing control over the country. Roman city of Krakow was quickly occupied by German forces, then using the Nuremberg Laws, which I encourage you to read about, it's sad stuff, which were racist and anti-Semitic and put in place for the protection of German blood and German honor, the now considered unacceptable Jews were gathered up and forced to live in the slums known as the Krakow Ghetto with thousands of other local Jewish people. Roman's family was, of course, no exception. 
At this time, six-year-old Roman was able to start going to school, but that only lasted a few short weeks before all of the Jewish children were unexpectedly expelled. After this, he wasn't able to attend any formal education for the next six years. During that time, the Jewish kids that were over 12 years old were forced to wear white armbands with the blue star of David so that they could immediately be visually identified. Roman watched as his neighbors in the ghetto were being gathered up and deported to the German death camps. Of one instance, Roman was quoted as saying, quote, I had just been visiting my grandmother when I received a foretaste of things to come. At first, I didn't know what was happening. I simply saw people scattering in all directions. Then I realized why the street had emptied so quickly. Some women were being herded along it by German soldiers. Instead of running away like the rest, I felt compelled to watch. One older woman at the rear of the column couldn't keep up. A German officer kept prodding her back into line, but she fell down on all fours. Suddenly, a pistol appeared in the officer's hand. There was a loud bang, and blood came welling out of her back. I ran straight into the nearest building, squeezed into a smelly recess beneath some wooden stairs, and didn't come out for hours. I developed a strange habit— clenching my fists so hard that my palms became permanently calloused. I also woke up one morning to find that I had wet my bed. End quote. And then Roman was forced to watch his own father, mother, and older sister being taken away. Beulah was four months pregnant when she and Annette were taken to Auschwitz, the largest of the German Nazi concentration camps and extermination centers. Sources say his mother was taken off of the train and was killed in the gas chamber not long after arriving there. Annette, however, long story short, managed somehow to survive Auschwitz, and once she was able to leave, she moved to Paris and stayed there. Roman's father was taken to Mauthausen, one of a group of 49 Nazi German concentration camps in Austria. Roman remembered hiding from the Germans while watching people being gathered. But while his father was being marched off in a line of people, little Roman ran to his father begging him to tell him what was happening. It was said that his father whispered to him in Polish, Get lost! Thankfully, his father had already made arrangements with the woman who promised to take Roman under her wing and absorb him into her family. She would lie and say he was her child, and since she was a Polish Roman Catholic, that offered them a very small amount of safety. Side note, my husband's great-grandfather and his wife, being Polish Catholic, still fled to the United States and survived. Some of his family that didn't leave were killed in the camps, so there's that. So take a moment and let that sink in. You are a small child, having only known life with your father, your mother, and your older sibling, and even when you were forced to live in the ghetto, what you still had each other, and then watching them all suddenly being taken away, and you are completely alone. 
a small child, not old enough to understand what was going on, where they were being taken and what would become of them. I cannot fathom the terror he must have felt. The German liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto played a significant role in one of his much later movies. But in 1943, the now 10-year-old Roman escaped with the other family. He very quickly absorbed the Catholic faith and attended Mass. He tried desperately to learn and be able to recite Catholic prayers from memory, and they taught him how to behave as a Catholic would, though apparently he was never baptized. But still, he had not been raised in any of this, so some concepts were harder to absorb than others, and at least once it was said that he was questioned by a priest who had visited the family and he didn't understand. That priest replied, quote, You aren't one of us. That was terrifying because, you see, the punishment for helping a Jew in German-occupied Poland was an instant death sentence. But he must not have reported them, thankfully. But he was still very much in danger. He later said that German soldiers would take shots at him for target practice. Again, take a moment to understand what that would do to a child's mind. Roman said he witnessed many grotesque and horrible things done by the Nazis and stated he saw people being senselessly murdered nearly on a daily basis. And because of that family's fear of being caught, and I don't think a single person listening to this would fault that family for being scared, Roman was sort of passed around from family to family, no one wanting to keep him for long. So, we have a child who, from some of his earliest memories after moving to Poland, witnessed some of the most violent and horrific things a child can, then watched his entire family be marched off to what I'm sure he had some sense was to be killed. He was taken in by a kind family, but they were terrified for themselves and their own children, so he was then passed around all while witnessing the torture and deaths of so many people around him. All of this before even puberty. This is all he knew, and he had no idea for so long that his sister and father had actually survived. At 11 years old, he was basically out on his own, fending for himself. The next year, the war would be over. It is said that a fifth of the entire Polish population had been murdered, the vast majority of which were civilians. Of those, the biggest population was Jewish. But his father was able to leave the concentration camp and reunite with his son. I can't imagine how that reunion was, and together they did the best they could to resume some level of a life. His father remarried in 1946, when Roman was 13 years old, to a woman named Wanda, and Roman's dislike of her was not something that was hidden either. Now, living under the communist regime was something that was also not lost on Roman. He later said that, quote, You must live in a communist country to really understand how bad it can be. Then you will appreciate capitalism, end quote. So his father reconnected with family, and Roman stayed in touch with them throughout his career. 
but something that did manage to take root into his heart during these unimaginably horrible years was his love of movies. He later said in an interview with Playboy magazine in 1971, quote, Even as a child, I always loved cinema and was thrilled when my parents would take me before the war. Then we were put into the ghetto in Krakow and there was no cinema, but the Germans often showed newsreels to the people outside of the ghetto on a screen in the marketplace. And then there was one particular corner where you could see the screen through the barbed wire. I remember watching with fascination, although all they were showing was the German army and German tanks with occasional anti-Jewish slogans inserted on cards, end quote. Since the war was over, he went to see movies as often as he possibly could. Every spare dime he had went to sit in those seats and watch. It was a way to escape a form of entertainment, and they became an obsession. Side note, relatable. He said, quote, I was enthralled by everything connected with the cinema, not just the movies themselves, but the aura that surrounded them. I loved the luminous rectangle of the screen, the sight of the beam slicing through the darkness from the projection booth, the miraculous synchronization of sound and vision, even the dusty smell of the tip-up seats. More than anything else, though, I was fascinated by the actual mechanics of the process. End quote. So it comes as no surprise that Roman wanted to work in the industry. When he was 14 years old, he began acting on the stage and also began attending the National Film School of Lotz, Poland. He acted in several films directed by celebrated Polish directors in the early 1950s, and by 1955, he made his directorial debut with a short film titled Rower, which was semi-autobiographical, but he also starred in the film. Other films he directed that earned him considerable notoriety were Two Men and a Wardrobe and When Angels Fall. He then graduated film school in 1959. And this was his childhood. I really don't think it takes any level of scrutiny to see his sort of base level, if you will. Again, he watched as his beloved family were taken away to death camps, where I'm sure he knew they would be killed. How would he ever have known his father and sister survived until the war was over? An article in the National Center for Biotechnology Information under the National Library of Medicine, along with the European Journal of Psychotraumatology, states that many World War II survivors in Poland show much higher rates of PTSD than previous studies had shown. And this would make sense, right, considering Poland belongs to the part of Europe that has been labeled, quote, the bloodlands, the area where the regimes of Hitler and Stalin, despite their conflicting goals, interacted to give rise to suffering and bloodshed many times more severe than witnessed in Western history. In fact, with regards to just Poland, PTSD was almost two times higher in Jewish children at 55.6% versus non-Jewish survivors who were at 30.9%. 
Another article from the Journal of Human Behavior in the Social Environment states that early childhood trauma, especially complex trauma, can cause neurobiological changes that impact human development and cause significant changes in brain function. These changes in brain structures are responsible for cognitive and physical functioning. Empirical evidence suggests that childhood trauma is associated with physical, mental, and emotional symptoms that can persist into adulthood. A child with complex trauma history may have problems in romantic relationships, in friendships, and with authority figures, such as teachers or police officers. When a child grows up afraid or under constant or extreme stress, the immune system and body's stress response systems may not develop normally. Later on, when the child or adult is exposed to even ordinary levels of stress, these symptoms may automatically respond as if the individual is under extreme stress. For example, an individual may experience significant physiological reactivity, such as rapid breathing or heart pounding, or may shut down entirely when presented with stressful situations. These responses, while adaptive when faced with significant threat, are out of proportion in the context of normal stress and are often perceived by others as overreacting or as unresponsive or detached. Adults with histories of trauma in childhood have been shown to have more chronic physical conditions and problems. They may engage in risky behaviors that compound these conditions. Children who have experienced complex trauma often have difficulty identifying, expressing, and managing emotions and may have limited language or feeling states. They often internalize and or externalize stress reactions and as a result may experience significant depression, anxiety, or anger. Their emotional responses may be unpredictable or explosive. Dissociation is often seen in children with histories of complex trauma. When children encounter an overwhelming and terrifying experience, they may dissociate or mentally separate themselves from the experience. They may perceive themselves as detached from their bodies on the ceiling or somewhere else in the room watching what is happening to their bodies. In an article written for Psychology Today, victims of chronic trauma often have an overwhelming desire to control their surroundings. And it makes sense that emotional reactions to any horrible event can produce feelings of powerlessness, and the exposure to that in the long term can be devastating. That feeling of powerlessness is an important underlying impact of trauma, and especially so in chronic trauma, and the victims may lose the ability to make decisions in their lives. The consequences of this can manifest in several ways, but I think when it comes to Roman, it manifested as a need for control. And what that control looks like takes many forms, of course, but I believe he sort of melted that into his love of movies and really plugged into it when it came to him directing. He had complete control over nearly every aspect of it, and this pleased him greatly. And no matter your opinion of him, when it comes to his films, 
He has a tremendous and obvious talent, and with his first few films in the late 50s, he had already found an impressive amount of success. In 1959, Roman married his first wife, Barbara, who was an actress, and she starred in one of his movies. He was then 26 years old, and she was just 19. They had dated for about a year before they got married in 1959. However, the marriage didn't last, and they divorced in 1962. I couldn't find any specific reason as to why they divorced, but it is implied that he was not faithful, and truthfully, he never really made this any kind of a secret. But his inappropriate penchant for teenage girls would continue. In 1962, he directed his first full-length movie titled Knife in the Water, one of the first truly significant Polish films after the end of the war that actually had no war themes in it. He had almost no budget and even less encouragement. However, this movie was a huge success and it gave him his first bit of international fame, winning the Critics' Prize in Venice and an Oscar nomination for Best Foreign Film. He was now 29 years old. After this success, he immigrated to France, where he continued to make movies, though he found the French cinema scene to be a bit elitist and not very welcoming of other directors from other countries. He went on to make three feature films in England, and it was said that the themes, situations, visual motifs, and effects reflected early surrealist cinema as well as the growing horror genre. And if you'd like a list of all of his films, they are easily found if you search. But it was on the set of Roman's movie, quote, The Fearless Vampire Killers, which was meant to be a parody of vampire movies, that he met actress Sharon Tate. This movie was his first in color using Panavision lenses and was described as having a striking visual style with, quote, snow-covered fairy tale landscapes. And it did garner a lot of praise for how visually stunning it was. But nonetheless, when they first met, Sharon felt that Roman was not happy with her being cast in the role as the innkeeper's daughter, and she would have been correct in her assumption. Stories told of him being very verbally aggressive with her, forcing her to do takes over and over and over. Being the people pleaser that she was, this only made her want his approval all the more. And as they worked together, he stated he began to look at her a bit differently and that he eventually fell in love with her. Now, at the time, she was seeing celebrity hairstylist Jay Sabring. But again, sources say he wasn't being faithful to her either, even though he said he was completely in love with her. She broke that relationship off and began dating Roman. Jay and Sharon would remain very close friends after. Rumor has it that when Roman and Sharon became an official couple, he told her that it would be an open relationship, that he would still be seeing other women, and at first she agreed, confiding in her friends that she hoped he would settle down and be faithful to just her. But that was not to be. If she even hinted, at him that she would like him to not be with other women, 
he would get upset and tell her that she had promised she wouldn't try to change him. And yet, after all of this, she agreed to marry him. She was quoted as saying, quote, We have a good arrangement. Roman lies to me, and I pretend to believe him. End quote. They married in 1968. Roman was 35 years old, and Sharon was 25. The wedding was highly publicized for the Times. Together, they moved to Los Angeles and joined the social group of the most successful young people in the film industry at the time, such as Warren Beatty, Joan Collins, Mia Farrow, Jane and her brother Peter Fonda, Steve McQueen, but they also became friends with Kirk Douglas, Henry Fonda, the Jim Morrison of The Doors, record producer Terry Melcher, and many others. Also that year, Roman was presented with the horror novel Rosemary's Baby by Era Levin and decided he wanted to make a movie about it. He allegedly wrote a 272-page screenplay that only took him barely over three weeks to write. This movie was a huge box office success and was his first Hollywood production and established him as a major player in the industry. If you haven't seen Rosemary's Baby and you like horror films, I suggest you go watch it as soon as you can. It is quite disturbing and a cult classic. So Sharon discovered she was pregnant as 1968 came to a close and the couple moved into the infamous house on Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon in February 1969. In August of that year, as Sharon was nearing the end of her pregnancy and while Roman was away in Europe filming another movie, Sharon, her best friend and former lover Jay, and two other house guests were brutally murdered by followers of Charles Manson. Now, most of us have heard every single detail of these murders, and yes, I do owe you a podcast on the rest of Charles Manson's life past his childhood, but today is not the day to rehash every horrid detail or we'll be here for hours. We'll go through it another time. For now, a high overview. Sharon was saved for last. Against popular rumors, her baby was not removed from her body. She and the baby died together. When Roman got word of his wife and baby's death, he flew straight home. He stated that his absence on the night of the murders is the, quote, greatest regret of his life, and wrote in his autobiography, quote, Sharon's death is the only watershed in my life that really matters, and commented that her murder changed his personality from a, quote, boundless, untroubled sea of expectations and optimism to one of ingrained pessimism, eternal dissatisfaction with life. He gave this press interview about the murders. I can tell you the last few months, as much as last few years I spent with her. Well, only time of true happiness in my life and facts which will be coming out day after day will make a shame a lot of newsmen who for 
a selfish reason right unbearable for me horrible things about my wife all of you know how beautiful she was and very often I read and heard statements that she was one of most beautiful, if not the most beautiful woman of the, of the world. But only few of, of you know how good she was. Sharon not only didn't use drugs, she didn't touch alcohol, she didn't smoke cigarettes. She was vulnerable. She couldn't refuse any friendship. She had innumerable friends, and I had them too. There was always somebody coming in the evening. There was always Sharon. <coughs> Waiting. <coughs> I'm sorry, I must stop for a moment. After this, he indicated that he was disgusted at how the media handled the murders and was, quote, shocked by the lack of sympathy expressed. He said, quote, I had long known that it was impossible for a journalist to convey a hundred percent of the truth, but I didn't realize to what extent the truth is distorted, both by the intentions of the journalist and by neglect. I don't mean just the interpretations of what happened. I also mean the facts. The reporting about Sharon and the murders was virtually criminal. Reading the papers, I could not believe my eyes. I could not believe my eyes. They blamed the victims for their own murders. I really despise the press. I didn't always. The press made me despise it. End quote. In 1971, Roman directed the movie Macbeth with Hugh Hefner, the owner of Playboy, financing the film. This movie had a full female nudity scene and was given an X rating along with the graphic violence the movie depicted. Many believed he was expressing the violence that had happened to Sharon and the others. But do not be deceived, my friends. While I do believe he was horrified and devastated at the loss of his wife and infant son, he was known to drown his sorrows, if you will, with the help of many young teens, generally accepted between the ages of 16 and 19, him being in his very late 30s at this point, all who said they just wanted to help him heal. Right. So... As much as I hate to, this marks the end of part one of the story of Roman Polanski. I feel it to be a good place to do so. In the next part, we will be getting into some pretty sickening things, so you can look forward to that. But tell me, guys, what do you think of Roman's story so far? Even if you already know the rest of the story, what do you make of his early childhood, what he endured, and how that level of violence and stress might have stunted his mental growth and understanding of things. Let me know, guys, what you think below. Leave me a comment. DM me on Instagram, at Serial underscore Killing. 
All of my contact information is in the notes. And as always, thank you so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I thank you for that. Have a great day, guys. Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.